Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Have you ever worked with a physician to optimize your sleep? Today's guest is going to help us learn more about arguably the most important part of well-being and health. Welcome, Dr. Broderick. Most of us spend tons of time in front of the computer, or the phone, or the tablet. What does the evidence say about the effects of screens on sleep? In the evening in particular is when I really get the most concerned about being on the screen. A lot of people are saying, well, I use this night shift mode or I use this flux mm -hmm. program on my computer, so it's not a big deal, but it's not just the light. When we're sitting in front of the screen, we're still telling our brain that it's daytime even though it's dark outside. We need it to be dark, secrete that melatonin to initiate the sleep part of our cycle. Even when we use blue light blocking glasses, these night shift modes, it doesn't matter. It's not just the blue light. It's the engagement of mm -hmm. the brain and the dopamine and things like that that are happening too. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journeys Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. Today I'm speaking about a really important topic, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now many of you listening may struggle with PCOS. You may think you have PCOS, but you're not sure. And so I think it's really important to have a full understanding of what it is. I'm somebody that struggled with PCOS, still struggle with PCOS now, but I feel like after many years, I have a little bit more of a handle on it. It is a lifelong condition. It is not something that goes away with diet or exercise or certain supplements, no matter what. Instagram tells you going gluten-free is not going to get rid of your PCOS. Now, if you eat gluten-free, I'm not saying that that doesn't help because some people do see benefits in certain changes in their diet. But what I'm trying to say is that PCOS doesn't just go away with a particular diet. PCOS is a lifelong condition that just needs to be managed. Sometimes it feels like a nuisance that I have to still see breakouts on my face. Nobody thought that they would be worrying about adult acne well into their 30s. And some women still struggle with this in their 40s. Some of you might be dealing with hair loss, something that I struggle with for really my adult life. Some of you may be struggling with some abnormal hair growth. That's something that can happen with PCOS too. Now, PCOS is something that's a very common condition estimated to affect nearly one in every 10 women. In order to get the diagnosis, it's not something that comes with just drawing blood. It is looking at the whole woman. You need two out of three criteria. This is the most accepted diagnosis for PCOS, one being having irregular menstrual cycles, having signs of increased 
male hormones. So that might be in the form of having acne on the face. It might be in the form of seeing hair growth on the face or the chest or the back area. It might be seeing hair loss. Or you may have had laboratory exams showing that your male hormones are indeed elevated. And the other thing is you may have a pelvic ultrasound to look at your ovaries showing a particular pattern called polycystic appearing ovaries. So in PCOS, our brain and our ovary, they don't communicate in the normal fashion, which results in no egg being grown to maturity to ovulate. And it also allows for more male hormones than usual to be produced. And then you end up with dreaded acne, excessive hair growth on your face, on the body, or hair loss. And honestly, sometimes it can be so frustrating, right? It sometimes can make you feel less feminine. Sometimes it can make you feel embarrassed. I went through a time in my life where I was terribly embarrassed to be out in public because of the acne that I had on my face. And I remember the first time about five years ago, I was seeing a patient and she complimented me on my skin. And it was literally like, is she talking to me? Like, I never had good skin. I'm somebody that struggled with my skin literally my entire teen and adult life. And so to have quote unquote good skin was something shocking. But I think as you get older, some women with PCOS do see improvements in their symptoms. And so I think that's one of the things that's helped me. And the other thing that I think has helped me is that I really have worked on trying to manage certain lifestyle things like what I eat, the stress in my life, getting good sleep, and taking care of myself more. I mean, the height of my PCOS was really at a time in my life during my medical training where self-care was pretty non-existent. And I really had a front row seat to see just how bad my PCOS could get. And so I really, really believe in the power of self-care in the form of doing all the things for your lifestyle to take care of yourself will help PCOS. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to change your diet and everything is just going to be great now, right? You're not going to break out anymore. Your weight is going to be exactly where you want it to be. Unfortunately, no, it's not that easy, but I think it can help. And the other thing about PCOS is it's not only relevant when you're trying to conceive. It's linked to many different health conditions like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, abnormal cholesterol numbers, sleep apnea, increased risk of endometrial cancer, and that's a cancer of the uterine lining. And many studies have shown that it can impact quality of life, sexual satisfaction, increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety. So if you have suffered with any of these things, and I know there are many women out there who may have had issues with anxiety and depression and told it's kind of all in their head, it's part of, unfortunately, the condition of PCOS. Again, I come back to lifestyle has really helped me to control these symptoms. I've dealt with many of those things on the list that I just told you about. And so I think it's really important to work with a doctor, identify if you have PCOS, and make sure that you're being monitored for these conditions. Even more important, if you're trying to conceive, get to your doctor as well, because if you're someone that doesn't have regular periods, you do not need to wait six months. You do not need to wait a year or more 
to try to see if you can conceive. Many women with PCOS do need some type of assistance to get them to ovulate. Many of them may also have a partner who has issues. And so it's really important for you to seek help. You do not have to follow these quote unquote recommendations. In fact, the recommendation is if you do have irregular cycles to seek help right away. So you may have heard that losing weight will help PCOS. It does. There's evidence to support that weight loss of 10 to 15% can help PCOS. Part of that is because our fat cells produce hormones. And so when you lose weight, it does help to get women to sometimes have more regular periods or more regular ovulation. I'm not saying you'll get regular periods. There are some women that will always struggle, still something that I struggle with, even with having a good diet and exercising and having good sleep and all of the things, doing all the things doesn't fix it 100%, but it improves it. So what I recommend working on is really trying to use lifestyle things to help manage PCOS. This is not getting rid of PCOS. It's something that's a lifelong condition that you need to manage. Please share if you think that this is something that will help someone else you know who's struggling with PCOS. I hope you enjoy the interview coming up. Thanks for listening. How many of you listening struggle with sleep and have just accepted that this is how it's going to be? And you go through your day relying on caffeine. We spend about one third of our lives sleeping. And for many of us, it's attempting to do so. But have you ever worked with a physician to optimize your sleep? It honestly seems like we all should be doing that, but very few of us do. And today's guest is going to help us learn more about arguably the most important part of well-being and health. Welcome, Dr. Broderick. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in sleep medicine and your background? Sure. My interest came pretty organically. I had trouble sleeping. I think many of my family members had trouble sleeping. And so it just became something that I was very interested in. My brother actually was a very dramatic sleepwalker. And as a youngster, jumped out his window and oh off the gosh. roof of our home and was injured very badly several times. And it just kind of really left this imprint, I think, because when he went to the doctor and he was evaluated, he's older than I am, but it left this lasting impression because we never really had good answers for it. And it's something he continued to live with, I think, until he went to college. He experienced wow walking there too. And then when I was doing my training as a neurologist, when you see a lot of people having strokes and these really devastating neurological conditions, you wonder, well, how can we prevent this? How mm -hmm. can we back up, catch this before this type of disease is developing? And sleep was this field on the horizon that was very appealing to me for that reason, because of the preventative and the wellness aspect. That is something that's really important, yet very few General physicians will really ask their patients about sleep and see whether they need help from a physician like yourself. Why do you think that there's like this gap where so many people probably need help from a physician like yourself, but very few actually get it? When people ask me that, I always think of the frog in the pot myth where the water kind of heats up so slowly the frog doesn't notice that the water is mm -hmm. getting warmer and it dies. Whereas if you heat the water really quickly, 
the frog will jump out. And I think sleep disorders are kind of like that analogy in that they develop very slowly and they have this insidious nature. I also think they're so ubiquitous that it's kind of hard to garner the reaction of doing a lot of interventions when something is not really hurting you in a way that is maybe apparent in a slow time. But I also think the culture of medicine, we also are more Mm -hmm. focused on treating disease than preventing illness. And I think that's part of it too. Yeah, I totally agree. I love what you said that we should be looking at things earlier because that's how I feel about a lot of things too. We're dealing with problems that perhaps maybe if we had some prevention, then we wouldn't be having the degree of problems that we have later on. And sleep, I think, is one of the ones that's super ignored because it's sort of like accepted in our culture, right? That you sleep less, that's something better, or, oh my gosh, you're someone who sleeps a long time, or you take a lot of naps. It's almost like there's some kind of shame attached to it. We're just like this go, go, go culture, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. So assessing someone's sleep is really complex, and it's something that requires work with a sleep specialist like yourself. But what are some things that someone can do on their own to promote healthy sleep? And then from there, if they're still having difficulties, then go on to work with a sleep specialist. A really easy, accessible tool is to complete a sleep diary. And there's a really great one on the National Sleep Foundation's website. And basically what the sleep diary is, is it's helping you make an assessment. And so we've all read the sleep hygiene rules over and over, but how do you measure how well you're doing that? You know, keep a sleep diary. Seven days is a good amount of time. You might even Mm -hmm. want to do 10 days or 14 days. But, you know, a lot of us judge sleep on a night to night basis. And we really should be looking more at like a weekly pattern or a monthly pattern to make assessments because the type scale is is broader and so broader than I think people initially realize. And so once you have that data, you can take a look at it and see how consistent am I going to bed around the same time or within an hour? How consistent am I about getting up at the same time or within an hour? How often do I take a nap? How much time do I spend in bed? How much of that time am I sleeping? And so I think it can give you some insight if you look at that. You can also track your caffeine and alcohol and some of those other sleep hygiene And you could just take a look at that and say, am I actually doing this? And if you are and you're still having trouble sleeping, then seeing a sleep specialist is probably a good idea. If you aren't doing those things, then you could tighten some of those things up, keep the diary for another week or two and see how you're doing and see if things are improved. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. What are your thoughts about sleep trackers or using that like your journal? Is that something that you condone using? I do. They are a double-edged sword. I think there's a lot of data that shows that apps and sleep trackers give people feedback and it helps them with behavioral change. There are some people that are going to have a harder time. I have seen quite a few people who become overly concerned about the tracker telling them about their REM sleep or their deep sleep and that, you know, can become something that people worry about. And so I think you have to be careful. And I think if you find that that information is bothering you, you might need some guidance or assistance in interpreting it, or you might need to use it as like an assessment point, make an intervention, and then reassess yourself and take a break from it. 
Yeah, I could see that someone might get obsessive about it. What are the true warning signs, though, that you might have a true sleep disorder and really should work with a sleep specialist? Like, what are the things that we should really be worried about? Daytime sleepiness is probably a big one. So if you just have a tendency when you're not being stimulated to get sleepy or doze off, some people might even just feel like they don't fall asleep, but their attention wanes. So they might have these subtle memory problems where they just aren't operating as well as they used to. I think also if you just feel overly concerned about sleep, like you're not sleeping well and you feel it's occupying your mind all the time and you're thinking about it, obviously insomnia, trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, both. Mm -hmm. Those are things that I would be concerned about. If your spouse or your partner tells you, hey, you are having trouble breathing, whether it's puffing, snoring, gasping, stopping breathing, those are things we want to look at too. But generally, I tell my patients, you should be able to fall asleep easily, sleep through the night with minimal interruptions, wake up feeling refreshed and feel alert throughout the day. And if you don't, then there's probably room for improvement. And how do you dissociate that from patients who are using a lot of caffeine kind of as a crutch. There's a lot of people who have a coffee and then they may have an afternoon coffee or a Diet Coke, or maybe they're having a Red Bull. Things like that make it difficult for us to see if there's a real issue. If you are using a lot of caffeine, I do think that is a red flag because I think you are self-medicating mm -hmm. intentionally or unintentionally in a way. And there are health consequences to consuming that much caffeine. And so that in of itself, I think, would warrant some assessment, even if it's just to say, hey, you need to cut back on that and see if you're still doing okay. Do you have guidelines for where someone should stop their caffeine through the day or does it matter how their sleep is impacted? Eight hours before your normal bedtime is like a general rule of thumb, but it can vary a little bit. Younger people metabolize caffeine faster so they can get away with consuming a little bit more without it having that negative impact on the sleep architecture. But there are some people that genetically are slow metabolizers mm -hmm. and they need to be more careful. So then if they might be seeing signs of difficulty, they may want to back off to even earlier then. Yes, for sure. What I see too is people start a caffeine habit young and then they continue it. And then it starts to manifest as like having to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And mm -hmm. it's amazing sometimes how when people eliminate caffeine that they don't have to urinate three times a night anymore. And maybe that didn't happen to them when they were 25, but it does now that they're 55. Right. And I think that there's some people who maybe don't need the caffeine as much as they should. They just kind of get into the habit of going to get their coffee in the morning or whatever it is. It's kind of like this ritual. So sometimes I suggest uh, people to get maybe like something decaffeinated or tea or something as a warm drink in the morning as a different option. Is there evidence for someone being a night owl and what you would call a morning lark? Because often there are people that say, well, I can stay up all night, but there's no way I can wake up in the morning. And some people just naturally wake up. Is there truth to that? There is truth to that in that we have what are called clock genes and they predispose us to having these traits. So it has to do with the protein. They're called period proteins and the rate at which they're degraded in the cell, um, in the cytoplasm. And so there truly are people who are genetically night owls and people who are genetically larks, as we call them. 
And most people are going to fall into the quote normal range, normative range, I guess. But yes, there truly are these genetic outliers. So it seems though that our society kind of is biased towards people who are morning risers, right? There's early work starts, there's early school starts. Is there something that a night owl can do to help them thrive in this type of society? There definitely are behavioral aspects. And I think it's a balance between trying to honor yourself and know who you are and accept that about yourself. And then also try to adapt to society. So with night owls, light exposure and darkness exposure are very important. And then also kind of curtailing behaviors on the weekends when your work schedule doesn't rein you in as much is very important. We also might use strategic napping. We also might use melatonin very strategically as well for these folks. Mm -hmm. But the light dark can be huge for sure. And so does it impact where you live? Because I know in certain parts of the country, you may have more difficulty getting light at a certain time. How do you navigate that? Yeah, for sure. I have worked in Alaska for five years where wow. there are really dramatic late dark cycles. And then even here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, it's light out here in the summer till 10. And then it's light out at 4.30 a.m. in the summer. The day is very short in the winter. So definitely a lot of environmental modifications. And it's interesting because sometimes it surprises me. I see patients in California too. And sometimes it also surprises me just how much, even if you live in a very sunny climate, how little light exposure some mm -hmm. people get during the day because they're inside all day. And we think we're kind of bombarded with light, which we are, but it's more like we're bombarded with it all day long, but the intensity of it maybe isn't as bright as it should be during the day because we're inside, we're in this box where five of the six sides are, are dark. And also, is there a difference between the light that we get from artificial light versus natural light and being outdoors? There definitely is a difference. The spectrum of light is different, but mainly it's the intensity or the lux, we call it. When you're outside, it's just exponentially brighter in terms of the light exposure. So that, that really makes a big difference. So do you recommend for people to get outside every day? I know it's honestly, I was surprised too how very few people really do get out because we're working, especially now we're maybe on Zoom working and never out. So is this something that you try to push patients to do? I do. Getting a natural sunlight for a few minutes first thing in the morning is ideal. I also really encourage folks that are having trouble sleeping to walk outside in midday. So if you have a lunch break or even if you can just on a restroom break, um, take a walk for a few minutes outside or just sit outside, it's really, really beneficial for signaling to our brain and, and training our circadian rhythm and providing this information that is very predictable to the brain that this is daytime, this is the middle of the day. And if you can't, you don't have to go out for an hour. I mean, great if you can, and if you can exercise even better. But if you can just do a little bit, it helps so much. You mentioned exercise. Is that something that's really beneficial to help with sleep? Exercise is one of the most beneficial things you can do for sleep. 
It helps build our need for deep sleep. It also helps with some of the circadian factors as well, letting our body know that it's daytime, letting our body know that it's time to be active. And so, yes, it, it really helps a lot. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, it can just be walking. It can be gentle movements, but any kind of exercise is, is really helpful. And is there some specific times that could be problematic if you are exercising, like in the evening? What some studies have shown is that if you do exercise in the evening within a few hours of bedtime, it will tend to shift your circadian rhythm later so that your natural bedtime will will shift a little later and your natural week time will shift a little later. And maybe if you're going to the West Coast in a few days, that would be a good strategy for shifting yourself. But if you're not, if you still are on wanting to go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, then that's something you would want to avoid. Okay. So you could use that if you're going to be going on a trip and you want to kind of shift your uh, time. You could, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, there are some people who claim that they're fine on six hours or less sleep. Is that possible or is it that they likely have some level of impairment and they really don't even realize it? Yes. That is generally the most cases is that people are impaired and they don't realize it. And again, it kind of goes back to that frog in the pot. People don't realize it because they slowly came to this as their new normal and they just don't realize what it would be like to feel rested. Now, there are some rare individuals that are what we call short sleepers who really truly can feel completely normally and function optimally with four hours of sleep, five hours of sleep, something like that. But those folks are very rare, so that's generally not going to be the case. And I, I've seen so many examples of this in my career. I'll never forget one of my first cases I had when I came out of training was I was in an academic center and there was a surgeon who came to see me. He had just gotten married again. And so because of that, the snoring was really bothersome, but his oxygen saturation dropped down to like the 50s when wow. he was asleep. Oh my God. So when we treated him, it was like really dramatic. You know, so this is a very high functioning individual. He was a great surgeon, very well respected. But he said in retrospect, he used to nap between his cases. He would go to the lounge and fall asleep. He didn't come because he was sleepy during the day. He came because his new partner said, you're snoring. And yet he had this really severe health issue underlying it. I want to talk a little bit about why it's so important to get help if you have poor sleep because it has a lot of negative health impacts long-term. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, the biggest one is cardiovascular comorbidities. So high blood pressure has been shown to be intimately tied in with sleep, but also things like depression, anxiety, migraine headaches, there's also some thought that it can contribute to risk for dementia or whether that's causative or correlation. I think people are still ironing that out. But for me, like your well-being, how your health span, how long are you actually living a quality of life too? So, mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about those big things like stroke and heart disease, sleep problems in general too, you know pretty much touch on any disease. We don't always know the relationship of whether they just come together or there's a causative effect, but yeah, you name it, we could talk about sleep. The other thing is like we were saying, you're talking about 
heart disease or stroke or maybe dementia. And a lot of these things come on later in life, I'm sure after if one of the things is that sleep deprivation, that's years happening. So one of the problems is that when you don't see it immediately, people tend to not really think that it's an issue. If you're someone who's listening and you're 25, it's not on your radar really for thinking about dementia or stroke or anything like that, right? Can you make up for sleep deprivation? Let's say you're somebody who's sleeping very often five or six hours a day. Can you make up for that sleep deprivation or if it's something that's just going to cause problems eventually? If you're chronically not getting enough sleep, if you're chronically only getting five hours of sleep, no, you can't really make up for it. You know, if it's a short-term thing, like I got up early to catch a flight this morning, Mm -hmm. yes, you can compensate for that. We can help it. We can improve it. But we think that there is, in some ways, damage that happens or this consequence of it that occurs when it happens over a really long, you know, time period, like months to years. And you mentioned earlier about if you hear your partner snoring, that is something that could be a sign of a sleep disorder. Can you tell us a little bit about that sleep disorder and what the problems are with it? Snoring is a sign that there is turbulent airflow in the airway. Basically, snoring is a vibration of the soft tissue in the airway from high resistance airflow. And it tells us that the airway is partially collapsed. And when the airway partially collapses, it reaches a point where it will disturb our sleep architecture. And so we'll have these microarousals where the quality of our sleep is disturbed. And we'll also have changes in our oxygen saturation and our heart rate. And when we have those events to a certain threshold, we call that obstructive sleep apnea or sleep mm-hmm. disorder. Breathing is the broad category. And then there are subcategories of that upper airway resistance syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea. And It's, you know, a very, very common condition. It's probably in five to 10% of anybody you take off the street has this condition. And it has these serious consequences of increasing your risk of having a heart attack or stroke by two to three times. And not only that, but it diminishes the quality of life because your quality of sleep is going down. And usually we see some, some cognitive effects as well. Daytime sleepiness, poor attention, decreased memory, irritability, things like that. So if you're seeing things like problems with your memory, daytime sleepiness, your partner says you're snoring or potentially waking up for air, then those are things that you want to work with a sleep specialist to identify. You use something in your practice called WatchPat1. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, WatchPat1 is a home sleep apnea screening test. And it works based on a technology called peripheral arterial tonometry, PAT. So the older pump sleep tests would have a nasal cannula and sense airflow. But this test is actually sensing the autonomic changes in the capillary beds of the finger. And based on that can tell when we have these obstructive breathing events in conjunction with other parameters like heart rate, oxygen saturation, chest wall movement, movement, position, snoring. And so it's essentially a device I would mail to a patient. They would pair it to their iPhone or Android. The device would record. They wear basically a wrist-like device with a finger cuff and then one electrode on the chest bone, on the sternum. They record one night, the data uploads, and then I'm able to look at it the next day. 
and I'm able to give people their results the following day. So it's this very convenient, easy screening test for obstructive sleep apnea. I just started using it actually during the pandemic mm -hmm. because it's a single use device, which is really nice because mm -hmm. one, the patient doesn't have to go through the inconvenience of going to the post office and mail me something back. And also you're not cleaning things or wondering if things are sanitized pr properly when we're in this pandemic. Yeah, I love that. Actually, that sounds really interesting. Something I want to try to use for my patients because I think sometimes people think like they're going to go to a sleep specialist and then they have to go to some a sleep study and it's going to be something that's inconvenient. But if you can do it from your own home and attach it to your iPhone, I mean, that sounds very simple and easy. And it's something that can be really important. Tell us a little bit about patients that you've treated for, like, say, sleep apnea. What kind of changes have they told you about their daily lives? Oh, I mean, first of all, there are many different treatments for sleep apnea, but everything under the sun and it varies. I mean, there are the people who wear CPAP, which is the breathing machine for sleep apnea, who wake up and they feel like they've been given a second chance at life. I mean, there are people that it's very dramatic in terms of it just is like a new person emerged. For other people, it's more subtle. I mean, for other people, it's I'm just more productive. I'm less irritable. I have more energy. I'm not falling asleep in my recliner after dinner. I'm just more engaged with my spouse, more engaged with my family. I've had people tell me my skin is better. My blood pressure is lower. I have better glucose control. I sleep better. I no longer wake up to have to urinate in the middle of the night. I don't have migraine headaches anymore. I don't wake up with a headache anymore. My atrial fibrillation doesn't keep coming back. Many, many different, different things. And I think one of the things for sleep apnea is it's almost like we expect that the person has to be overweight or you have to be snoring very loudly. Is there truth to any of that? Or tell us a little bit about that misconception potentially. Yeah, that misconception I think comes up because when sleep apnea was first described, it was described in its most dramatic and severe form, which is that kind of, it's the Pickwicky and Charles Dickens mm -hmm. character. But we know that, for example, in women that sleep disorder breathing manifests much differently. So it's not uncommon for women to present to me with chronic insomnia. And lo and behold, they actually have pretty significant untreated sleep apnea as one of the driving factors of the insomnia, especially in menopause, women's risk for sleep apnea goes up. And a lot of these women are shocked because they're petite, they're fit, they're normal weight and didn't suspect it. But there are also younger people that are, you know, I've had professional athletes, runners, ultramarathon runners that have obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing where it's more a function of probably anatomical factors, things where the craniofacial development or orthodontics weren't done. They might've had speech issues or things like that, that could have been proactively treated when they were a child with orthodontics and speech therapy that we're learning more about. You know, when I was growing up, if your jaws were too small, they would just pull your premolars to make, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and nowadays we don't do that. People shouldn't be doing that because we really want to encourage the jaw growth and kids can have allergies when they're younger where 
their nasal breathing and because then you don't have a good tongue position, you don't get this widening of the palate. And so, yeah, it's, it is a misconception for sure that you have to snore or you have to be overweight. Yeah. And it sounds like this is something that really starts from childhood and working with dentists and orthodontists and all of that. That's fascinating that it's not something that just develops over time because I think that's something that we imagine, right, for sleep apnea. This is something that comes with age and it's because of being overweight and all of that. I think that's super important. Can you tell us a little bit about insomnia, what that means? I mean, we hear that term kind of thrown around a lot, but it is a sleep disorder and there's a a certain type of appropriate treatment for that. Can you tell us about that? So we call chronic insomnia difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, and we think it needs to occur at a certain frequency. So three times a week for over three months is what we would really define as chronic insomnia. Of course, we would want to look to see if there were other sleep disorders, because as I said before, sometimes sleep disorder breathing can masquerade as chronic insomnia. But if it's truly this more behavioral type of insomnia, then our gold standard treatment for it now is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Yeah, this was based on an article that was published in 1987 by Dr. Spielman. It's called the 3P model of insomnia. And it's based on the idea that there are these predisposing, precipitating, and then perpetuating factors for insomnia. And the perpetuating factors are really the things that people are doing to cope with the insomnia. And Mm -hmm. so the CBTI or the cognitive behavioral therapy is aimed to try to curtail those perpetuating factors. And it involves five components. So sleep hygiene, sleep education, what's called stimulus-controlled therapy, sleep restriction, and then also relaxation or meditation. And when I see people, some of those components they've been practicing already. And sometimes one component is much more pronounced in terms of what the person needs to address. But generally, we kind of touch on all of them over the course of like four to six visits. And so how long does it take? You said four to six visits. Is that something within that time that some patients may get improvement in their sleep in just that short time of working with a sleep specialist like yourself? For sure. I get people that have really severe insomnia that only see me two or three times. I have other patients that need to see me eight times. And so it does vary a little Mm -hmm. bit, but the average like standard protocol is four to six visits. Wow. So that's actually pretty short when you consider that some people out there may have been struggling with this for ever. I mean, I know some people that said since they were a child or a teen, they've always had difficulty with sleep. Is that something that you see that people just basically their whole lives, they've always had issues with sleep? Yes, very much so. And it's not uncommon for those folks to also say that one of their parents had trouble sleeping too. And so there's probably some part of it that might be somewhat learned or whether the person didn't learn some of the healthy sleep behaviors. But also thoughts and beliefs about themselves. It's not uncommon for people to need to address this feeling that like I'm intrinsically not a good sleeper, like something inside Mm -hmm. is wrong with me. Right. And that's not actually true, but it's sort of been ingrained into the person from a very young age. And so kind of reworking that inner monologue can be an important part of the CBTI as well. 
So there's potential for somebody who is, like you said, has been kind of ingrained in them that they are bad sleepers, that actually that could be potentially reversed. Yes. Wow. See, that's amazing. I want to send everybody to see a sleep specialist now. (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about screens. Most of us spend tons of time in front of the computer or the phone or the tablet. What does the evidence say about the effects of screens on sleep? Yeah, so in the evening in particular is when I really get the most concerned about being on the screen. And a lot of people are saying, well, I use this night shift mode or I use this flux Mm -hmm. program on my computer, so it's not a big deal. But it's not just the light. With the light, we have these receptors in our eye in the retina, and they're not the rods and cones. They're actually a separate type of cell um, called a retinal ganglion cell, and they're most sensitive to blue light. And the blue light then follows a pathway all the way into the brain called the retinal hypothalamic pathway. And that is what suppresses our melatonin secretion is when we're hitting our retina with blue light, Mm -hmm. it's telling our brain it's daytime. And so when we're sitting in front of the screen, we're still telling our brain that it's daytime, even though it's dark outside and it's nighttime. And so we need it to be dark in order to secrete that melatonin to help initiate the sleep part of our cycle. That's one part. The second part is, is that being especially on social media Mm -hmm. or scrolling through the news, it's very engaging to our attention. And so what we've seen in some studies that have come out recently is that even when we use blue light blocking glasses, even when we use these night shift modes and things like that, it doesn't matter. It's not just the blue light. It's the engagement of Mm -hmm. the brain and the dopamine and things like that that are happening too. Yeah. And they're very addictive. That's kind of how they're designed, right? Is to keep our attention and to keep us scrolling or to watch one more video or one more TikTok video and all of that. And especially probably for young people that are staying up late on their phones and using them. What do you say to the person who wakes up at night? Because I think sometimes people end up waking up and then they go on their phone or they go on the computer. What is your advice if someone wakes up and is having trouble getting to sleep? Now, I know this is a complex question and I don't want to try to simplify it, but are there any tips that you have for that? Getting on the phone is not a good idea for the reasons that we just talked about. The general way that you want to approach that is you don't want to force it. You have to let sleep come. And, and it, a lot of times it will. People can say, oh, I'm never going to fall back to sleep again. And if you just wait five minutes, they do. And so I think it is sort of this Jedi mind trick where you can't think yourself to sleep. You have to just let it come. And I think if you notice that you're doing that, if you notice that you're in this mindset of like trying to force it or you're frustrated or you're anxious, it can be a good idea just to get up to remove yourself from that situation and maybe look at a magazine or look at a book or something like that or knit or whatever it is you do. And then notice when you become drowsy again and, and get back in, in bed. Yeah, I think the common thing for us is just to turn over and reach for the phone. But that's like the worst thing we could do, as you said. Yeah. The the other patients that I often worry about are those who do shift work. 
So shift working is something that actually can negatively impact our health long term. Can you speak a little bit about the dangers of shift working? And then there are some people who cannot change it. Is there anything that they can do to try to mitigate these problems? Yes, definitely. Shift work is a risk factor for so many health conditions. Because of the circadian misalignment and dysregulation that we think occurs, but also because shift workers, they are functionally sleep deprived folks that don't sleep as much as, as, you know, most of them. Night shift work is different a little bit than like rotating shift. There are some people that always work the night shift and they have a predictable schedule. Mm -hmm. And for those folks, what we want to try to do is we want to maintain some part of the sleep period consistent. So we anchor the sleep into some part of the day, but we might shift it forward or back depending on which days of the week they work. There's been a lot of work done on that in nurses mm -hmm. looking at that and trying to improve those outcomes. I've worked with quite a few out here in where I work. There's a huge Boeing population of people mm -hmm. who work a second shift and that can conflict a little bit with like if you have kids that you have to get up and be up early, but then you're working these late hours. And so I think it really depends on the person, but yes, there are things we can do to be creative. Strategic naps are probably very important. Environmental modifications are very important. So if you're needing to sleep during the day, we really want to make sure we can get your bedroom really, really dark. We also want to get you some lights where you work and, you know, perhaps even at home at times where we want to simulate a day that it's night. I think there's a lot that we can do. There are some folks, too, that I've worked with that we've just encouraged or helped to modify the work schedule in a way mm -hmm. that we're able to. I had a patient recently who was working retail and just sometimes was working really early or sometimes working really late. And what we did was we just kind of made some boundaries about how late it could be or how early it could be, just so we could really keep that anchored eight hours of sleep at the same time every day, no matter what her work schedule was. And that really helped her a lot. I think the difficulty also for someone who's doing shift work is that now during the day, they may have to do certain things. They may have to go out and do errands and all of that. So they end up maybe cutting into their sleep to be able to do those things. I wanted to speak to you about how sleep causes issues with hormonal imbalances or fertility, because most of those who are listening are interested in how sleep may impact fertility. So is there any evidence to support that the sleep disturbances can impact our hormones? Looking back on what we were talking about on shift work, most of the research we have on fertility and sleep comes from looking at night shift workers and everything from having an irregular menstrual period to increased time to conceive, Mm -hmm. And then miscarriages and then things like that are seen in people who work shift work. And so mm -hmm. we know there's this relationship specifically for fertility. We know mm -hmm. that like about a third of women who experience infertility have sleep problems. If you just kind of survey them, we know that if you have PCOS, which is a very common cause of fertility, that you're 30 times more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea, mm -hmm. which is huge. There is a thought that because of the menstrual cycle is this ultradian rhythm or it's this type of biological rhythm that circadian dysfunction in general or having an irregular menstrual period is part of those circadian issues that go together hand in hand. We don't really know that relationship. There are definitely people, I think, trying to study this. 
We know they go together, but the question is, does the sleep problem really contribute to infertility? And I think it does. I think there are studies that show, but we just don't know like how much it contributes. We don't know the magnitude of that. Is it really Mm -hmm. that clinically significant? We don't know. It's really difficult to really be able to see because I'm sure it impacts people differently. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things with research when we talk about things like your sleep or your nutrition or your stress it's not that it impacts everybody the same. So that's why it makes research so difficult. And it's also difficult to then get out all the things that could be problematic as well. We can't just focus just on the sleep because there's other things. So it's pretty complex. But I think, you know, what you said about PCOS, I wonder what being that there's such a high level of sleep apnea, do you think that that is something that most PCOS patients should be screened for? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think they should all be screened, not only Mm -hmm. because of regardless of whether they're actually trying to conceive or not. Mm -hmm. I think that they should be screened because it is a metabolic condition that is connected with glucose intolerance. And thyroid is the other big thing that I didn't mention before Mm -hmm. in terms of hormones, where we do see folks with hypothyroid being at risk for uh, obstructive sleep apnea. But yeah, they should all be screened. And if they are trying to conceive, They should be screened as well because you are going to be at a higher risk of having complications if you have untreated sleep apnea during your pregnancy, whether it's Mm -hmm. from having high blood pressure or just some other things that come, gestational diabetes, things like that. So definitely, I think those people should be screened either way. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think I'm going to start sending at least all my PCOS patients to be screened because I do see a number of them that have some things that are questionable. So thank you for that. It's so easy now with the watch pad, right? So Yeah, totally. Once I heard about this, I'm like, oh, I think everybody should start doing it. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about a few things that people often think might be helping their sleep or they're needed for sleep and get your advice on them. Now, I think alcohol is one of the things that people think help them sleep. And I wanted to see if you could dispel that myth for us. Yes. Alcohol is a sedative, so it will sedate you really and feel kind of knocked out. But the quality of sleep you're getting, it really steals the REM sleep away, which is one of our deep stages. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes people will wake up in this state of almost like a fight or flight where they feel kind of anxious um, because of the rebound or the withdrawal from alcohol. So it's a very net negative trade-off for sedated but not really getting quality sleep. And is that for any amount of alcohol? If you're taking it right at bedtime, yes. Okay. But if you have it earlier in the day and you metabolize it, then maybe not. Okay. So often people may have it with dinner or they're having it before bed, like a glass of wine. So they're going to be getting some kind of impact from that. Yes, exactly. Okay. The other thing that I often hear is I use marijuana for sleep or CBD products. What are your thoughts on that? Marijuana, I'm not a fan of just because I think that THC um, has some negative effects on sleep and probably is not a net benefit. If it's being used for something else like pain or something where it's being prescribed, maybe. Right. But specifically for sleep, there's just no evidence that shows that it helps. CBD may have more clinical applications. The evidence isn't really strong for it right now. 
Mm-hmm. But I think, and a lot of the products that are available are a combination of CBD and THC, but I'd be really interested to see, I'll, I'll be really interested to see, and that is something I'm following closely because mm-hmm. we do have an FDA approved CBD product on the market for neurological disease, for a form of childhood epilepsy. And so then it's being explored for MS, spasticity, and some other things. And so I do think there may be a clinical application there. We just don't know for sure, like what the dosing should be and things like that. I think that's super interesting because I can't tell you how many people I see who say they use marijuana for sleep. And it's like all the time I see that. So I really didn't realize how it's not really that beneficial. What are your thoughts about using weighted blankets? Is that really something or is that just kind of a marketing thing? I do think it's something. I mean, comfort and relaxation and how we feel is important. It's kind of like a warm embrace or a hug. There might be some context there for the person where it feels good. So, yeah, I think it's good. And now blue light blockers. Should everybody be using them if they're using screens in the evening? Not a bad idea. I think it helps. I mean, I think getting off the screen is better just for the reasons we talked about. but. But I do think they're a helpful tool and I think they're helpful for people who are night owls who are like, if they have to be outside or even just watching TV, I think they can be helpful for sure. What's your general guideline for how many hours before bed you should stop screen use? At least an hour. If you can do a little bit more better, but if you can get an hour, I think that's great. What are your thoughts on sleeping pills? I know a lot of people use Ambien and other types of sleeping pills. Well, number one, they're not the gold standard treatment for chronic insomnia. Mm-hmm. I think they can be used very appropriately in specific situations. So I had someone pass away. I got a divorce. I am getting mm-hmm. treatment for cancer or whatever, yeah. and I just temporarily need help. Very appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I think when someone has been on it a long time and they are needing more, it's not working anymore, they're bouncing from medication to medication, I think we really need to look at CBTI. And the last thing is... I often hear is melatonin, like people are using melatonin all the time. Is that something that you should be using all the time? Is it something that you could stay on for extended periods of time? That is a very controversial question. And if you Mm -hmm. ask different people, you'll get different answers because you'll hear some people say, oh, melatonin was studied in the 1980s of the contraception because it can suppress ovulation Mm -hmm. or, or in rats, it shrinks their testicles down. And so there are these people that feel like it suppresses puberty and then it can be not good for a child to take. Now, on the other hand, mm-hmm. like if you look at the fertility literature, you'll see some studies that show that it is a potent antioxidant, that mm-hmm. they find it in the fluid of the follicles and that they think it improves the quality and perhaps the number of you know follicles and things like that. And so, and those are small trials. So I don't know how valuable like some of the reproductive endocrinologists would regard those studies, Mm -hmm. but there is this sort of interest in it. I kind of stand in the middle of those opinions where I think that it can be used really appropriately. And I I do prescribe it all the time, but I do think there are some people that are just taking way too much of it. Three milligrams Mm -hmm. is what is mostly over the counter. And it is just, it's a lot. It's if you look at how much like we have in our bloodstream, it's like way more and so if you're taking that much, it should probably be for a specific reason that's short term. Let's say you are going through a difficult time sleeping. In older people, we think like if you're 65 years or older, 
people develop these calcifications in their pineal gland. And we think because of vascular disease, they don't secrete as, as much melatonin, then it can be really appropriate in an everyday use in that situation. But most of the time, I'm going to either be using it in a lower dose in a short-term usage situation. How do you find a lower dose? Because like you said, usually it's like three milligrams, four milligrams. How do you find it? Yeah, I mean, you can get a liquid form. It tends okay. to be more expensive. You can find, I think, a one milligram if you look mm -hmm. online. But it's odd to me that they don't make that like half milligram. Or I did recently find one for my child, actually. It was an Ollie gummy that has 500 micrograms, which is oh. half a milligram. Okay. So I did find that at Target recently. Oh, a small dose like that is sufficient for people to take. Right. It is. Yeah. Yeah. More is it better. So mm -hmm. if you're like on 5, 10, 15, unless you have REM behavior disorder or some of these other sleep disorders, we don't really use that high amount. Thank you. So in closing, I usually ask my guests about how they cultivate joy in their own lives, because I think that finding joy in our daily lives is a wonderful way to try to help promote our emotional and mental well-being. So how do you cultivate joy in your life? One of the things that I'm the most passionate about is the outdoors. So before I had my daughter, I spent a lot of time climbing big mountains and rock climbing and things of that nature. I live in Seattle where we have the Cascades um, and the Olympic Range very close. So I make it a point to get outside by myself, unplugged every week. I make time for that. I think that's great. I love all the pictures that you share on Instagram. I'm always jealous of all the things you're doing outside. So I think it's a great tip to get outdoors and spend time with just yourself. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. Where can listeners find you or if they want to work with you, how can they do that? I am on Instagram at Sleep Dr. Mare. And then also my clinical practice is Sound Sleep Guru. So just my website, soundsleepguru.com. And I do see patients on telehealth visits in California, Alaska, and Washington. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like I could continue talking to you forever. I have so many questions about sleep because I think sleep is something so important that we really don't spend time on. So I really appreciate your time being here with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today, Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. Welcome, Brandon Johnson. Did you have struggles with your family? Oh, plenty, Shala. Plenty. Family doesn't always want to accept things because everyone wants every struggle to be normal. Make sure you talk to your spouse first because you might expose something that you don't want anyone else to know, or your spouse may not want your parents knowing that they're there for the one. So the most important part of this journey is learning how to work together, because it's not an individual concern, it's a couple's concern. And infertility is probably one of the few diseases that will always be a couple's concern. That's really important because sometimes I, I hear things like, I'm here because of him, I'm here because of her. And I think it's really important to connect with your partner and know that this is a journey you're on together. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. 
please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.